As Nick mentioned, we're going to start a new series this morning, walking through some highlights of the life of Abraham. Um, And although this series will be semi-biographical, after all, it is the life of Abraham, what we're really going to be focusing on is uh, it's going to be a study on what faith looks like as it's lived out. If you've been with us the last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Galatians, Paul has been contrasting the works of the Torah with the uh, righteousness that comes by faith. And one of his primary examples has been Abraham. And so the hope for this series is to help us think through, all right, but what does a life of faith actually look like? And what we're going to do is we're going to look at seven trials or seven tests of Abraham's faith, places where there's a clear choice. And one choice is the choice that goes the way of faith, and the other choice does not. Okay? And so we're going to pick up in the beginning of Abraham's story in Genesis chapter 12. And as we open this up and read it here, it's important to realize um, that this is a beginning in more than one way. Genesis, uh, of course, even implied in its um, English title there, is a book about beginnings. But this is the place in Genesis 12 where God actively begins to work to set things right. Okay? And so this is very much, as we will see, the beginning of Abram's relationship with God. The beginning of Abraham's walk of faith. The first faith action that Abraham takes is the one we'll see in the text today. But it's a whole lot more than that, okay? Because without Abraham, there is no Israel. Without Israel, there is no promised Messiah for Israel. Without promised Messiah, there is no Jesus. Without Jesus, there is no salvation, okay? And so even the promises, as we'll read them, that God gives to Abraham here point forward, as we've been seeing in Galatians, to God's big plan to save the world, okay? So, what I want to do is I want to read the first seven verses of Genesis chapter 12 here, and then I want to talk this morning about trusting in God's plan. Genesis 12, verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred, and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham went as the Lord had told him. And Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Morah. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar to the Lord 
who had appeared to him. Let's pray. Father, your word in the book of Hebrews says that without faith it is impossible to please God. Our desire, Lord, is to live a life that is pleasing to you, a life that is motivated by and driven by and representative of faith. I pray, God, as we look at Abraham's example this morning, we would be able to see clearly the choices that lay in our own life and the places where you are calling us to trust in your word, to believe in your promises, and to live our lives in light of faith. We pray this in your name. Amen. At this point, if you're not familiar with the book of Genesis, you may wonder who Abram is at this point in the story. And the truth is, if you go back and read chapter 11, he's just a tagline on a genealogy. All we know about Abram before Genesis chapter 12 is that he's the son of Terah. That's it. Okay. And so, as I mentioned, this is very significantly and truly a beginning. It's a beginning of Abraham's walk with God. It's the beginning of Abraham's faith in God. And one of the things that I want you to think on, if you are familiar with the book of Genesis is that as we walk through Abraham's story and he learns about God's faithful character and in response to that grows in his trust of him and his word, it culminates in this place where Abraham manifests unbelievable trust, right? As God calls him to sacrifice his son and he obediently marches up the mountain, raises the knife, and it's only because God intervenes that Abraham doesn't do it. Abraham is considered to be, according to the biblical label, the father of faith, the first and primary example. But as we'll see in these seven tests, he doesn't always succeed. He often fails. His faith grows as it's challenged. It's two steps forward and one step back. It's challenged and strengthened and over the course of his life, he comes to know that God is faithful and trust him more and more. But it begins so abruptly. Here's some things that don't come out in the text that we learn at other places in the Bible. When God says to Abraham, go from your country, Abraham is not, if you will, a Christian. He is not a worshiper of the God Yahweh. He does not know Jehovah. Joshua tells us that like the rest of his family, he just worshiped the local idols of his land. Okay? So he is not looking for the God who made the universe. He's quite content, presumably, with his own religion, with his own ways, and he has a life. And that's, I think, the most important thing. Okay? If we are going to trust in God's plans, the first thing you have to recognize is that God's plans, God's opportunity for faith, is always an interruption. It's always a challenge to the status quo. Okay? Faith never looks like God saying, keep on keeping on. Faith never looks like God just saying, no comment, right? Faith is always an interruption, and we can look at so many lives besides Abraham's to see this. Jonah, go to Nineveh. Does Jonah want to go to Nineveh? No, okay? Peter, 
He's a fisherman, and Jesus walks up to him in the middle of his workday and says, put down your nets and come and follow me. Matthew, the tax collector, come away from your job and follow me. Paul is on the road to kill Christians, and Jesus says, turn around and follow me. It is always an interruption. Okay? If you want to live the life of faith, it's not going to be continuing on in the status quo. And here's the thing that I think we often forget. Abraham had a life, and presumably a pretty good one. When he does pack up everything he owns and head to a land that he's never been to because God told him to, he has quite a lot. He takes with him 300 household servants. Whatever Abram was doing in the land of Ur, he was doing well and successfully. Okay? I think sometimes we get the idea that Abraham's just, you know, an ancient Near East cave dweller biding his time, doing absolutely nothing until God intervenes. But it is totally potential and totally possible to be too busy for God's plans because we're doing our own thing. That's the major temptation. What is the first challenge for Abram here? It's to leave behind the familiar. Look again at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, go from... Okay, it's a leaving. Do you see that? The first thing Abraham has to do is leave. Leave what? Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house. He has to leave behind the familiar. He has to leave behind the things he takes for granted, the things that are his, his nation, his kindred, his greater family, his home. Now, let's be clear here. Faith doesn't always call you to drastic leaving. In fact, for as miraculous as the life of Abraham is going to be, the primary features of it are not that miraculous. God says, I'm going to give you a baby, and I want you to move. That's it, right? Now, again, this is leading all the way to the coming of Jesus Christ and the saving of the world. But faith in the life of Abraham is just a change of address and a pregnant wife. So it's not that faith is always miraculous or marvelous, although it clearly sometimes is, and even Abraham's life will have a smattering of that. But it is always new. It is always different. It is always separate from the usual activities of our normal life, unhindered, unencumbered, uninterrupted. And the truth is, for many of us, change is not our forte. It's not something we're actually really interested in. The truth is, whatever you're doing right now, whatever makes up the building blocks of your life, you've chosen. You've built this life. You've developed your habits. You've established these relationships. Right? There may be parts of your life that you don't like, But in the honest engagement with the fact that you did it yesterday and you'll probably do it tomorrow, you've got stasis. You've settled. You're content. This is my life. Again, put yourself in Abram's shoes. 
Here's your life. Here's your family. Here's your home. Here's whatever you're doing for a living. And then God says, leave it all. Think of how many times this happens in Jesus' ministry. A man comes to Jesus and says, what must I do to have eternal life? Jesus says, well, you know the Ten Commandments. And he starts to list them. And the guy kind of shuts Jesus up. He's like, yeah, 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 I'm doing all of that. He says, one more thing you need to do. Take everything you own, sell it, give to the poor, and come and follow me. It's different. It's new. It's challenging. And just practically, it requires something new that this, mon- money, or this man hasn't had. Trust. Right? If the life of faith is going to work for this man as he comes and follows Jesus, he's no longer going to have to be self-satisfied, self-content, self-providing. He's going to have to trust. You know, it's one of the most striking words in all of chapter 12. Look at what he says at the end here of verse 1. He says, leave your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land that I will show you. Not the land that I have shown you, past tense. Not the land I am showing you, present tense. It's not like God shows up with a brochure and says, let me introduce you to the land of Canaan. A land flowing with milk and honey. This isn't an infomercial. Instead, he says, start walking and I'll tell you when to stop. You see the trust that that involves? The truth is, as Americans, we are are primarily self-made people. We aspire to self-sufficiency, to independence, to being our own person. But this interruption here, this challenge to the status quo, is a step away from that. Okay? And because of that, it's uncomfortable. It's challenging. It's disturbing. Abraham lives a life that is a life interrupted. Because the life of faith is always a life interrupted. Now this bleeds into the second thing we want to talk about this morning, but but just to start here, simple question. Either your plans, your future, your priorities are self-imposed, or there's room for God to set a different agenda. That's the difference. That's what faith looks like. Okay? Now, I want to be clear. Abraham is not looking for this. Okay? He's he's not, you know, at the end of a 40-day fast and period of prayer saying, God, what do you want for my life? God just speaks. He just shows up. And again, as we follow the scriptures, how often does that happen? What is David doing when God intervenes in his life? He's just hanging out with some sheep. He has no plans, no ambitions. And here comes Samuel the prophet, and he says, hey, David, he anoints him with oil, and he says, God wants you to be king. Completely different. Total change of plans. And again, we could do that all morning long. Exhibit A, B, C, 
Noah's going about his life. God says, I want you to build a boat. Right? It's an interruption. It's an interruption because it's a life of two instead of one. It's an interruption because it's a life of dependence instead of independence. It's an interruption because you give God a vote. And if we're going to be honest, it's a whole lot more than a vote. You give him authority. Can you think of reasons this morning why Abraham could say no? Of course you can. This home is all I've known. But my family, right? But I like it here. So many things. But you haven't given me enough information. The list could go on and on and on. Even in a pop culture sense, we know that faith demands those questions, right? The second thing, which is built on the first, is that faith means abandoning your plans for the plans of someone else. Faith means stepping away from your future as you designed it, as you aspire to it, for another future. Okay, because the truth is, it's not just that Abraham had a life. I promise you, Abraham had a plan. He was working on his 401k, right? He was about to start another franchise down the street. Whatever it was, he had a plan. And let's be honest again, it probably wasn't a perfect plan. I have a feeling when God says, I will give you a child, that's a big deal. Because Abram is a 75-year-old man with a 65-year-old wife, and they've never had any kids. So there's parts of the plan that aren't working out. There's incentives, if you will, to go with God's way. But it doesn't change the fact that at this point, as the word is spoken, as Abraham hears it, he has two choices, my way or the way of Yahweh. I can go on with life as I planned it, as I intended, or I can take God's plan. And again, come to a land that I will show you. The choice here is not between two fully developed plans. Right? This is one of the most amazing things about human beings. We can envision in very concrete ways the future. We are masters of the hypothetical. That's what makes fear such a dangerous thing in human lives, because we can imagine the worst-case scenario, right? But we, we envision out years, five-year plans, decade-long plans, right? You're planning for what life's going to be like in your 70s. That's part of what it means to be human. And God doesn't say, let me change that up and show you life in the 70s. He says, come with me to a land that I will show you. He says, obey this first. And then once you get there, okay, now the next one. Okay. Abraham steps out into a land that he does not know for a plan that he is not privy to. He steps out in faith. Now here's the thing. There is a way that seems close to this and is not the way of faith. 
There's a way that seems tremendously religious in the living of your life and is not the way of faith. There's a way to handle your plans where you make God part of it without having to trust him. And here's what it is. God becomes a means to fulfill your plans. Right? And so we think, all right, God, I have this beautiful ambition plan. I just need you to, you know, to move. In fact, for many of us, that's where prayer lives begin. That's where our interaction with God begins. We know what we want. We know what we need. We know where we're going, and we know that God can help. Okay. It makes God a means to an end. And effectively, what we do then is instead of, instead of building God's kingdom, we hire him as a contractor to build our own. Right? But that's not the way of faith. James points out that even demons know God exists. And that comes with all of his power and ability and capability. Recognizing God is necessary is not the same thing as recognizing God as God. It's interesting, isn't it, that this story doesn't start with Abraham and Sarah saying, God, give me a child. It starts with God saying, I will give you a child. Now, I've talked with enough infertile couples to know that that prayer has been there. Whether they got the address on the envelope right, I do not know. Who they were asking to help them have a child, I do not know. But there is a heart of hearts desire here, for sure. But that's not the big bait here. In fact, although God says, I will give you descendants, plural, it's so much bigger, the focus here isn't, isn't on the child. It's something else. What if? What if instead God helping you build your kingdom, he wants to build a better one? And see, this is the big thing. What do we see in Abram's life here? Is this just about Abram's destiny? Is this just about the fulfillment of Abram's life? Is God only working here just because he loves Abraham and wants to do good things for him? That's clearly part of the story. They're going to have an intimate and loving relationship. And at the end of his days, Abraham is going to know that the God of the universe cares for him personally. Hands down. But God is doing so much bigger than just answering the prayer of an infertile couple. His plan is so much more ambitious, involved, intricate, chronologically extending, right? We're really good at thinking about the next 50 years because we'll be part of it. We're terrible at thinking about the next 200. That's why we always criticize the generations that came before us for being short-sighted, as we do the same. But God here begins a plan that will take thousands of years to execute And he does it in such a way that it involves the intimate details of a single man's life. We hate not seeing the big picture. We always ask, what does it matter? 
What's the significance? What's the point? Read the Psalms. How many times does the way of faith demand behavior that is costly and does not accomplish what it should? And the psalmist says, what is going on? In the book of Hebrews chapter 11, we have what's sometimes called the hall of faith. The author of Hebrews wants to, do, to illustrate that faith is woven through all the great characters of Scripture. And so he makes examples of them, Abram and Sarah included, as well as Noah, as well as Moses. He just walks down the line and he illustrates, but do this homework. Read the passage and look for how many of the people don't get what they were promised. Don't find what they were looking for. Don't experience the fullness of what God is doing. It's actually all of them. That's the point. You'll see it in the vocabulary over and over again. You know, Abraham here is promised the land. When he dies, he dies with about one acre of it in ownership. Abraham is promised a new home, but he lives in a tent his whole life. So does his son. So does his grandson. It's because the timeline is so much longer than Abraham can envision. God doesn't just problem, promise Abraham a son. He promises him as many descendants as the stars in the sky or the sand on the seashore. It's a long-term project. You know, Notre Dame in Paris took over a hundred years to build, which means there were builders who started after it had begun and died before it was finished. Have you ever thought about that? Never getting to see what the finished project looks like and spending your whole adult life working on it? remember my wife and I saw a Canadian sci-fi show, which would be, hands down, my favorite type of show. And it was similar. It was about a generation that was born in space en route to a new earth, but would not survive the journey. They were the in-betweeners. In the Bible, it's all of us. Abraham's vision isn't big enough to even match God's, let alone rival it. Faith is a surrendering of our plans. There's a contrast you probably don't get here if you don't read closely. Abraham is specifically contrasted with what happens in chapter 11. I'll show you what I mean. Chapter 11, we have the story of this group of people building what we call the Tower of Babel. But look at verse 3. Chapter 11, verse 3. And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick and stone and butamen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. I want you to notice two things there. One, they're repeated for ourselves. Let us build a city for us. Let us build a name for us. What is that? That's a plan. It's a program. It's an agenda. 
And then the second thing I want you to notice is that this is directly contrasted with Abraham. They say, let us make a name for ourselves. And God tells Abraham, I will make a name for you. Do you see the difference there? One is the plans of mice and men. And the other is the way of faith. And so, faith is always an interruption, a change in the status quo. If there's a place right now, this morning, where God is asking you to take a step of faith, it requires change, to do things differently. And it also requires a change of plans. And not just that, but a change of planner. Right? There is a totality to this invitation. It's not just, hey, Monday through Friday, how about you let me determine your path, and you can have Saturday and Sunday. It's not just, hey, for this next season, why don't you let me drive? The invitation here is a total one, an ultimate one. The question is, who will be Lord? Who will set the agenda? Who will give the commands? Who will draw the line on the map? The life of faith is a life of trust in God and therefore a life of trust in his plan, in his ways. It's not just a surrendering of the past or the present. It's an open-handed surrendering of the future. But there's a third thing that I want us to see this morning, and that's that faith Faith calls us to resist the obstacles, to deny the impossible. Now, we see this a lot in the Bible, right? Where God says, here's what I want you to do. And people say, I don't think that's going to work, right? God comes to Moses. He says, Moses, I'm going to use you to deliver all of your people. And he goes, but I stutter. Jeremiah goes, but I'm young. Jonah goes, but I'm not interested. I'm on my way to Tarshish, right? We see lots of obstacles to faith, and we'll see them in Abraham's life. In fact, here they are. Abraham is just promised by God, I'm going to give you more descendants than the stars of the sky, but he is old and his wife is barren. And the truth is, we're going to see the same obstacles but I don't know how it works financially. But, 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 right, we're going to have this list of things. In fact, just, just taking just this chapter this morning, the invitation that God makes here to fulfill his plan to save the world involves a 75-year-old man. I know missions agencies that would turn away men for being that old and say, no, we can't send you out. Like I said, it's not just ageism in one direction, but in the other. He comes to Jeremiah and sa Jeremiah says, but I'm too young. Gideon says, but I'm from the least of all the families, and I'm the least in my family. Over and over again, we see these things. In fact, in Abraham's life, it's going to require a miracle. But my wife is barren. 
And she's not just potentially barren. You know, at this point, they've been married for decades. This is before modern conception. It's not like there was a period where they weren't trying to have a kid. In fact, by the time that God meets this promise, according to the book of Romans, and just the plain math of the book of Genesis, she's not just barren. She's postmenopausal. She is too old for child when God does this. Let me add another one. Age, things we can't do on our own, impossibilities. But it's too late. I waited too long. I disobeyed for too long. I didn't listen, and now it's too late. There was a time where God was calling me in faith, and I missed the boat. Look back at verse 1 with me. Now the Lord said to Abram, do any of you have a little footnote there? A little number drawing your attention? The literal Hebrew here is the Lord had said to Abram. Acts chapter 7 tells us that God called Abraham out on this endeavor years earlier and hadn't gone yet. In fact, the easiest detail, the thing that slows down the journey, is that his dad is still alive. Now, the call is very clear. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country, from your kindred, and from your father's house. But that's too much for Abram. So he waits. He doesn't go. And then at some point, he reconsiders. At some point, he sets out. Think of all the places in the scripture where it's not too late for faith. Samson, given very basic but clear instructions. Avoid these things. The dead, the fruit of the vine, the cutting of your hair. And not only does he do all those things and fail to keep consecrated as he's called to, but he also never does anything else that's good. He spends his life chasing pagan women instead of delivering Israel like he's supposed to. And because of his foolishness, he ends out a slave to the Philistines, blinded because they've had his eyes gouged out, and working in the mines for decades. And there comes an occasion late in his life where he's brought out to be just, you know, a, a dancing example of failure to a bunch of Philistines. And there he cries out. There he engages in faith. Jonah, heads in the wrong direction, is swallowed by a giant fish and goes on second thought, right? And even there, his heart's not in it. When Jonah finishes, he's still got his arms crossed, grumpy about doing the will of God. But we know that that's not where the story ends. Because who wrote the book of Jonah? Jonah is a confession. It's Jonah looking back and going, I can't believe how long it took me to get it. Let me tell you my story. Peter. Peter, who in pride says, I will never betray you. Even though Jesus says, yes, you will. Generally, it's good to believe what Jesus says. 
But he comes back and he's restored. I could keep going. I think there are times in our life where we feel like we're out of decisions. Like now we just have to settle for God's plan B. Because we blew plan A. There's a man who meets Jesus in the last moments of his life as he hangs on a cross being punished for his crimes. And remember, this isn't just punishment. This is capital punishment. He will not leave this cross until dead. It's as if Jesus walks up to him in the room of lethal injection. And he looks at this man hanging next to him, and he sees even in the way he dies the divine character and the reality of Jesus. He gets the message and he says, remember me when you enter into your kingdom. Jesus says, truly today you will be with me in paradise. That's faith. Anytime the scripture says God is faithful, the appropriate response is the response of faith. So let me remind you this morning that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And you say, all right, that's fine. But it's still impossible. Here, Abraham is called to live an impossible life. But with God, Jesus says, all things are possible. In fact, we're going to watch as Abraham makes the first mistake we often make in faith, which is God says, I will give you a son. And he goes, I think God wants us to give him a son. And so he comes up with a way to make it happen. He manufactures fulfillment of the promises of God. He strives and he struggles and he says, there. And all he makes is a mess. And again, I want to remind you that the faith we see in Abraham is a human faith in a faithful God. And so it's got its ups and downs. It's got his struggles. It's got places where he says, God, you said and you still haven't. And it's 25 years from the I will of Genesis 12 to the sound of the laughter at the birth of Isaac. 25 years. He makes mistakes. He wrestles with his faith. He struggles in it. He fails in it. That's the plan. That's what God is doing in Abraham's life. Abraham is not saved by faith. He is saved by faith in. It's the thing that he places his faith in that brings about the child and brings about the descendants in the nation of Israel and brings about the Savior. The question is not, are there obstacles to the things God says he wants to do? The question is, are those obstacles larger than the God who calls you to it? That's not a call to supernatural faith. Jesus says, the faith of a mustard seed will do. Why? Because it's faith in 
the all-sufficient, all-powerful God. Here's the challenge I want to issue to you this morning. And I want to set it again in this context. We walked through a lot of times where God calls across the scripture and calls people to do amazing things, big things, very specific callings. I don't think any of us this morning is called to be the king of Israel. I'm not even sure any of us is called to be the prophet of the United States of America. And none of us is called to be the father of a nation. But when you go back and you look at the stories as they are, the callings are much more simple and mundane than that. It's go to this place. It's speak this word. It's trust that I will provide instead of providing for yourself. It's live a life that doesn't make sense unless I'm real, unless I'm here, unless I show up. When Daniel chooses not to eat the food at the king's table because it doesn't align with the way that God has called him to eat, his boss, a eunuch, says, look, if you don't eat and you start to look emaciated and unhealthy, the king will have my job and probably my head. And Daniel goes, well, give me a trial period. I'm just going to eat vegetables and we'll see if I'm as healthy as the other people. That's not good dieting advice. I don't care how many books they publish on the Daniel diet. That's faith. That's, all right, I'm going to live in God's way, but he's going to have to show up so I can keep my job. And this is how the commandments of Jesus are. When he calls you to turn the other cheek, that's the life of faith. When he says to not worry about tomorrow, that's the life of faith. When he says to give instead of take, that's the life of faith. Living the ways of Jesus, it requires that Jesus is right, that Jesus is real, that Jesus is present. This is why, according to a book I read this week, the life of faith is the life of madness. Because it's not obvious and reasonable and rational. Can you imagine the conversations Abraham has with his family? Well, I'm leaving. Where are you going? I don't know yet. Okay, and remember, this is, this is pre-wanderlust. That's a post, you know, explore reality that we have now where we're like, let's go see another place. In the ancient world, that was just danger. That's all it was. Okay, well, why are you going? Well, God told me to. He's going to give me and Sarah, my 65-year-old wife, a son. In fact, he's going to make me a nation. Okay. It's madness unless God. And lastly, related to that, it's madness because it lives as if the future is already true. And we all know this about faith. Faith is this type of trust, right? It's a future-oriented trust. It's a looking forward. When Abraham sets out, he has to believe that God is going to be there when he arrives. 
When Abraham goes through this life, he has to believe that what God said will happen tomorrow will happen, but it impacts his decisions today. Faith is madness because it doesn't extend where you are to a foreseeable future. It takes the future and brings it into the present and says, therefore I will live this type of life. Another piece of homework, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5, when Jesus says what the good life looks like. Have you ever noticed how future-oriented it is? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall, future tense, be filled. Blessed are those who weep, for they shall, future tense, rejoice. The calling there is one of consolation, but it's also a calling to live as if you will be consoled. Blessed are those who are persecuted for my name's sake, Jesus says. How could that possibly be true? Only if God keeps his promises. Only if God is faithful does our faith matter. The challenge for us, now that I've laid this context, is where are you being called to madness? And again, for many of us, it's not going to be big and expansive. It's not going to be a change of national residency, moving across the other side of the world. A lot of times, Jesus' call is just a call to go home. Think of the demoniac that he heals, right, in the Gadarenes. And he says, Jesus, I want to come with you. And Jesus says, no, go home. Think of the woman that Jesus meets in Samaria who leaves her water pot and runs back into the city. She's still living the life of faith. She goes to an audience that has scorned her and rejected her because of her past mistakes. And she says, I think I found the Messiah. Do you want to meet him? Right? It's a totally different thing. It's a step of faith. And especially because we, again, as modern Americans, are obsessed with our own plans. Are you willing to open your hand and ask for instruction? Are you willing to put all of it on the table and say, God, what do you want to do? Are you willing to put down the hammer that you're using to build your own future? And just present it to God and say, what do you want to give me? Where do you want to send me? How do you want to use me? If you're not a Christian here this morning, you might say, but how does the life of faith work when I don't know God? Neither did Abram. And that's the best message of the entire Bible, is that God is not hidden so that you need to find him. We are lost, and he is working to find us. He is seeking to save us. If you want to begin the life of faith, you begin by believing what the Bible says about Jesus when it says, if we confess with our mouths that Jesus Christ is Lord and believe in our hearts, we shall be saved. And this is what Jesus says. This is salvation. This is eternal life. That we would know God and the Son whom he has sent. 
A relationship with God begins with a relationship with his son, but it also begins with faith. Believing that Jesus did what God sent him to do. And that he did what God sent him to do on your behalf. And that because of that, he's opened up a new way of being. The way of faith, walking with and following the God who made you, who loved you, who died for you, who really does, like the tracks you may have found on the bus on occasion, have a wonderful plan for your life. Let's pray. Father, sometimes faith is a slippery thing. Sometimes we just mistake it for a positive outlook. And faith just means to grit our teeth and keep smiling. Sometimes faith seems like something that's for the heroes of religion, for the saints. But faith is the lifeblood of human life. Faith is life as it was designed and created. Faith is nothing less than a living relationship with the living God. And I'm reminded this morning in deep gratitude, Jesus of the day that I crawled out of my bed, aware of everything I'd built in my life as it all crumbled to sand around me and I just said, God, I know you can do better with my life than I can, it's yours. And I pray that you'd help us all to just take that posture again this morning. The posture that has open ears and open hands. The posture that wants to see you moving and working in our life. The posture that wants to be part of what you're doing as you build your kingdom. posture of Abraham, posture of faith. I pray for any this morning, Lord, where you've been speaking to their hearts, where they've had an itch, or a word from you that's just sat on the shelf, or where there's a place where they know what the scriptures is calling them to do, but they have yet to act. I pray that you just affirm that word in their right now, and that like Abraham, they would surrender their own plans, they would surrender their own comforts, they would surrender their own fears, and they would follow and discover that you were good. Thank you for your word this morning. Thank you for sending your son. designing a way that we might live in relationship with you, where we are your people and you are our God. As we worship, may we do it with hearts that are full of faith, that know that the things that we sing are true, and that we can build our life on them. I pray this in your name, amen. Amen.